Hello everyone. Welcome to the Sec Tools podcast by Infosec Campus. I'm your host of the show Sanup Thomas. Today we have Joaquin Kennedy with us uh, to talk about his project, uh, especially an interesting uh, reverse engineering toolkit on Go binaries. Um Joaquin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great. To start with um maybe your your introduction to information security. How how did it all started? What drives you into Infosec? Um I think the initial sort of drive into it um started back when I was a teenager. Um I think it I realized that I had a little bit of a different take on like how to what to do with computers than my friends. I I didn't really like to play games as much as what they did. I was more interested in the actual server side and how things were running and, and sort of that part. So um while they were sort of playing games i i started to figure out you know how do you run a web server and set up you know databases and email servers and things like that um and it sort of led me down to the path of i i think i, I was hosting one of their um local game server that they used for like matches and things like that so i was sort of the sysadmin for their clan um and that kind of sort of started turning over to the you know the point of like you know what hear all the stuff about hacking and things like that so how how are they actually compromising these machines um cuz sort of setting up web servers was fine but then moving on of like you know what what is it that goes wrong um so kind of led me down the path of into um a little bit more of i guess what we call now the red teaming and things like that so we started poking around a little bit working you know playing around with like tools like metasploit and uh um i think it had back in the then then too was uh, an early version of nessus just for to doing like initial like vulnerability scanning, scanning just trying to figure out how all these tools sort of fit together and how it sort of worked and sort of stumbled around there um yeah and uh that was I think that's was kind of where it started. Now I uh, had another passion too. I was sort of very interested in doing um uh research within spe- specifically within sort of um science field. Um so I was trying to figure out when I was going to college if I wanted to go into more of a computer science or if I wanted to go into hard science and uh sort of made the decision of going with the science route. So I technically i'm more tra- i'm trained as a um, chemical engineer um and then with a sort of a concentration going down into um pharmaceutical science and drug delivery um but then when i was sort of done with that uh education piece sort of came back to technology again and uh decided to want to explore that and uh instead of going in and actually doing research in in the science field I decided to go in and do research within the security industry um interesting so yeah it's kind of an interesting uh, kind of a little bit of a um sort of the, an interesting way how like the circle the sort of circle completed because uh um the company I started with was a uh, um was rapid seven they just had opened up actually a local office here where I'm based um and obviously it was kind of one of these tools that that they have that sort of got me in in the first place um uh, 
back when I was a, uh, a teenager. I think even at that time when I was using Metasploit, it was even before it was acquired by uh, by Rapid7. Uh, so it's kind of fun to go and join the company, um, you know, years later. Yeah, this was uh, like very long back when, when Rapid7 actually acquired the uh, uh, Metasploit team. Yeah. Um, I just remember the some sort of like a announcement or something like that, that it had been acquired by Rapid7 and, you know, who was this? Um, I guess at that Boston-based security company, mm-hmm. um, you know, didn't really, you know, it, it was just an interesting sort of when you're looking back at it, it's like you re- remember the first time I actually heard um, the company <laughs> term. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, I think this that's um, fairly the first time I've seen uh, someone um, in in information security had. Uh, slightly different background or different uh, start um, of, to, to get into information securities. Most of them either starts from maybe a typical development or, or, you know, like an engineering side and they find it exciting to see the dark side um, and, and get into like information security, start breaking systems and applications and then eventually get into maybe defense side or, or a team side. Um, so they choose the colors, whether it is blue, red, black, whatnot. Um, yeah. That's that's an interesting story. So thanks for sharing that. No worries. Um, yeah, I mean it's it may sort of look strange on the paper, but you know, I'm very I'm I'm self-taught in most of the things that I've you know that I've been doing. So it's always it was nothing that it was something that was always going on in the background. You know, it was always a hobby. Um, so. Personally, it was, it didn't feel like a, a big jump, you know, it yeah. was more of like, okay, I'm just going to turn this thing, this passion that I have that I'll do on the side and actually turn it in to become my um, daily driver. Um, but obviously when, when it's only a hobby there, you know, the track record isn't not really there, you know, it's, it's nothing you have on paper or anything like that. <laughs> Agree. Yep. Um, when you um, started, uh, maybe started building like game uh, servers, um, you you also worked on or you you faced issues on uh, people doing like cheat codes and and experience on like how to fix them. Um, so I mean, this was what I was actually doing was more of setting up. Um, oh, what was the the Counter Strike? Was it one point six or so? I think it was the last one before. They moved over. It was when it was still sort of that a mod of a Half Life, um, and before it, it was pulled into the Steam client. Um, um, so it was more of running sort of the the Linux server for that, um, and it was a closed down um, server. Um, it was only used for. Um, sort of matches between two different teams. Um, it was, I think it was, it was hosted at uh, um, my cousin because he had a, a pretty good broadband connection back then. Uh, so he had the server and I just remoted in, made, was making sure that the server was sort of up and running and that the server software was, was fine. 
The only thing I remember happened a few times was when um, they basically loaned or rented it out uh, more, you know, to some other teams so they can have like run their match on it and they change the admin credentials on the, the actual server application. Um, Cause I think it was how it worked was when you, when you logged on, you kind of authenticated to get sort of admin privilege so you could control who was getting on on the games. Um, so there was a couple of times where you had to go and sort of reset the password, but otherwise it was nothing really nefarious, um, luckily. Mm-hmm. Yep, interesting. So you, you pretty much started as maybe a kind of, I would say started as a problem solver. They tried to like build machines and um, try to fix things and, and you know, like kind of building things rather than like start finding break points or start finding. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I would, I would, I would agree. Um, I mean, that's, I, I really like to solve sort of problems and puzzles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do enjoy sort of building things um, for problems that I see. Um, I like that challenge. Um, and that's also what's kind of appealing um, sort of the um, security field and sort of the, the area that I'm working on with right now. I mean, um, sort of, re- I really enjoy looking and doing sort of reverse engineering and things like that, because it, you're looking at a, you're looking at a, at a puzzle and you're trying to figure out what it's doing. Yeah. Um, so it's that challenge that's, it's, you know, um, it kind of drives you. And then, you know, when you are finally sort of figure it out and solve it, you get that sort of mm-hmm. uh, rush, just like, yes. Yeah. Maybe a quick question before we get into um, an interesting uh, reverse engineering toolkit that you developed and maintaining now. Um, sure. Before we get into that, um, I would like to just ask a very quick question about, did you uh, remember uh, the, f- the first ever program that you have written? Oh, um, <laughs> it's, that's a really hard question. Um, no, maybe, uh, okay. I'm not about, I'm I mean, not sure about no, the, the education so, patterns. So what I would say, uh-huh. no, it's fine. So what I would say, I mean, what I would have started at, what I started out mostly was to, I was doing with sort of the, um, the sys has been sort of a side, uh, there was always a bunch of like shell scripting. So throw stuff together in, uh, shell scripts to, um, obviously it was more of a chaining of commands just to make things sort of a little easier. Um, but there was always, um, sort of building few tools here and there, um, just to make things easier. Um, it's, it's hard to sort of figure out pinpoint, like a sort of a bigger thing that I built. I, I don't know if I've actually built something, um, or biggest thing that I've built that I didn't put out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the things within public, they're, they're much easier because you, um, I think I take, you, I spend a little more, t- more time on them and take sort of take a little bit more care of it. So, um, maybe it makes it easy to remember. Uh, but it's always been sort of that kind of stuff. I think, um, I mean, back when 
um, even back at the, you know at a university and sort of in the, in the, in the uh, um, during the my uh, chemical engineering degree and sort of the postgraduates afterwards, it's constantly building tools around just to um, automate and simplify some of the tasks that was around it. You know, it was a, to automate, you know, writing scripts to process data um, and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, not really things that you would sort of put into public because they were very, very specific for this, for the act, that specific problem yeah, yeah. they're not really um, general purpose uh, uh, tools or scripts uh, pretty much uh, very specific to you like your use case yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i mean um, back in like my schools and we we have a set of programs that we we were taught uh, in the campus um, for doing like xyz activities maybe um, you know hey draw a, a circle around all the corners of the computer screen maybe using a c graphics uh, uh, header files or graphics uh, um, libraries um, that will be pretty much on the academic side but um, the, the the tools that uh, we wanted to actually see um, people actually go outside their campus um, syllabus and then write tools that they can actually use on their desk uh, you know maybe just for fun or maybe something that they want to yeah. share with the world yeah so that's good um, a lot of automation things since the beginning I, I'm pretty sure that that's definitely helping you uh, even today. Oh yes, for sure. I mean, it's, there's my, my, my was sort of bash alias. I have a bunch of bash alias for, and script functions and things like that, just to automate and process data. If it is, you know, to bulk download, uh, malware samples and unpack them and, you know, triage them and things like that. Uh Um, it's constantly there. Oh, nice. Um, from yeah. from building systems um, uh, and uh, maybe building scripts, automating scripts, and when did it sh- uh, shifted from um, like building something to do reverse engineering side? Um, the I think the re- sort of the reverse engineering has always been there. Um, even from back when I started looking into some of, you know, how exploits and things like that was, um, yeah. um, when I sort of got interested in how they worked. Um, so I was always sort of looking at it, but it was, uh, it was, I was always getting sort of like just my feet wet into it. It's just kind of like dipping in and it's just, um, sort of getting a, a, a taste, a little bit of a sort of a taste of it. I just remember the, so the first, t- first time you're looking at assembly, um, it's, uh, yeah, if you don't, if you're, if you haven't really been taught sort of assembly and things like that, and first, first time you see it is, it can be pretty daunting, uh, cause it's, yeah. Um, all of those instructions is doing a bunch of stuff and you have re- no clue of what actually is going on. Yeah. Um, but, um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of that, um, did sort of the real, when it actually went from sort of building tools to actually becoming more of a, uh, time when I actually had to, uh, get pro- proficient at it 
um, was obviously when I started sort of started working um, as a in the industry. Um, so one of my first sort of jobs was to um, I worked on the uh, the Nexpose engine, so it was part of um, one of the teams that were responsible for the um, remote vulnerability checks. Uh, so anything that um, was running unauthenticated and that we could basically probe the system for um, and determine vulnerabilities. Um, And then also the part of identifying, so sort of like fingerprinting things. Um, So sort of in that phase, there was a lot of, you know, there was part of trying to figure out how systems uh, actually worked and you had to um, look at some patches and trying to figure out what changed and how can we determine from uh, if this has been patched and things like that. Um, it just, uh, you know, at that point I also took a sort of a deep dive into, um, the Linux, uh, or sorry, the, the windows patching system on how, um, all, all the different, like the patches are tracked in the, by the Microsoft's, uh, all the Microsoft patches in, in the registry and things like that. And we get, <laughs> More familiar, more familiar than I sort of wanted uh, into what's going on in the registry uh, okay. during the Windows update. Um, yeah, um, but it was always a fun part of you know you try to figure out something where there's no real documentation around it and there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Um, and when you're also trying to figure out a big system like that, it's there's a lot that happens um, and uh, yeah, you can't really sit sort of spend years for reverse engineer all the binaries just to figure out where they're writing stuff and things like that. So you have to kind of uh, take a step back a little bit and see what's happening from like a dynamics perspective and sort of puzzle things together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of an interesting take on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, so it was always there. It's like, you know, yeah. the experience with it, it's just that as I've sort of progressed, it's going to just happens that it gets a little bit more deeper and deeper. Um, yeah. Kind of just building upon, you know, your previous experience. Yeah. Um, when I, I'm sure that you, you may have encountered um, binaries from like different, different languages and compilers and compiler versions and whatnot. Um, yeah. Anything specific that you encountered uh, in in Go binaries um, that that you thought, um, hey, this probably would need a better toolkit to, um, you know, probe the uh, binary informations and and maybe, you know, um, better tool sets for for doing reverse engineering, specifically Go binaries. Like, what um, what was the motivation behind Go reverse engineering toolkits? So. Prior to that, I have actually actually written um, most of my tooling in the la- in the last few years has been written in the lang- in the Go language. Um, so it's you know the I think the interest of looking into actually the binary more came from the sort of the enjoy of ro- sort of writing and writing the la- writing code in that language and then sort of the things that it actually is producing. Um, it's a it's an interesting it's an it's a nice sort of evolution of 
um, um, how how sort of it's it's a nice modern language that's say you know kind of summarizes that. Um, I'm, I I think you can if you're not so too familiar with with it as um, you can more think of it as a uh, almost like a Java C sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, replacement over more instead you know that's probably more where it sits instead of like a um a c c plus plus replacement um it does have a pretty good um performance over if you yeah. uh, you know compare it to java and c sharp uh but it has more of the uh, it's more of a closer kind of um um feel when you're sort of developing in it um, so, so that's the, kind of the nice thing is that, you know, the, it's very easy to produce binaries for different sort of doing cross compilations and, uh, compile it for different, uh, architectures and things like that from the machine that you're actually building it on. Um, so it's a very, very portable and nice thing. So, um, and one of the things that it's you know, to make it that is that it pulls in all of the dependencies. So all your libraries of things are statically compiled into the binary. So all you have to do is just drop this blob on the d disk of the machine and just run it. Um, so it's a, um, you know, it, that's when you, when you start looking at that, that's, that is already a big sort of like a, a big hurdle then when you want to start to reverse engineer actually these, these kind of binaries, because where you're starting out now is instead of having, you know, for example, if you would look at like a hello world for the C, obviously you have a few, there's a stub functions that's always created by libc and uh, sort of the um, compiler and linker just to sort of set up the application before it calls the, the main function. But it's, there's not that many functions. Um, and I think last time that I looked at Hello World for Go. I think it's about fifteen hundred functions or something like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, when when nothing is, you know, if you strip symbols and things like that, um, and then you also know that you know Go runs has a runtime, so you know before your app your code is sort of run, it will set up the runtime and garbage collector and things like that. so you know there's a lot of stuff that goes on right before you before you hit your before you your code is actually getting executed mm -hmm. so to find the important stuff that you want to look at is sort of like a, the first big problem um so I th that was kind of where where this sort of idea came sort of came along it was more of like written stuff i've looked at some of the binaries um and i knew there was some interesting data inside of the binaries that are produced by the um um we're gonna say the so uh, the, there's a there's a couple of compilers that actually can compile um go code but the compiler is sort of mainly the, the mainline compiler has it does produce a lot of add some interesting metadata to the files, um, and um, you can actually see this when you um, if you actually take a binary and, and you strip it and remove all of the debug information, 
and then when it crashes, the um, the actual crash sort of the stack trace that's coming out does include the file path to the file and the source code line number where the actual code crashed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where the first uh, pointer that I saw that like hey, if if the if the binary knows when it's crashing, you know this information has to be somewhere. So if I can sort of extract and use this, um, it can get actually we can actually get some interesting things out of it. Um, what it is to just be able to annotate the actual functions, um, or if it is to almost reconstruct some sort of a um, overview or projection of the source code layout structure that the author has sort of that they're using, uh, which is kind of an interesting take because you kind of get a little bit inside the head of the author. Interesting. Yeah, I never did a reversing on uh, Go binaries, um, pretty much on uh, typical PEs or ELF files. Um, so yeah, uh, Go binary seems interesting to do a re rework. Yeah, um, there, it's like a, um, there are some tools out there uh, to help you because there is a, when you start out, there is a, there's a giant hurdle to get over um, because of that, the, the size of the number of um, subroutines, it, 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 that's the first step is like, you need to sort of solve that. Um, and once you get over that hurdle, um, it actually becomes very easy, in my opinion, to look at the, um, at the, the actual binary, what it's doing, because now you have um, almost like the blueprint because you have all the function names and everything has been annotated. So you kind of looking at a non-strip binary. Um, and because it has pulling in all of the libraries or third-party libraries. So if there's something that um, it's calling like a third-party library and you don't really know what it is, you can always go, you can go and look at the actual documentation for that function and you don't have to trawl down and figure out what it's actually doing because now you can just go and read the development docs around it. Um, so it's a kind of an interesting, it's that one big problem. And once you kind of solve it, uh, it seemed to be much easier afterwards. Um, yeah. Um, so if, if you can list out like quickly on some, some of the features that, uh, GoRE framework supports, um, on reversing, uh, Go binaries, uh, what, what would be your favorite features and what are the features that, um, uh, you, you like pretty much? Uh, in in GoRE framework. So yeah, it's so it's actually when I actually started developing this tool, it was more of a uh, um, just a sim, sort of a simple tool just to extract some of this inf information. Um, so the first sort of functionality that I added is like. Um, it's a very interesting um, sort of an overview function. So what it it will do is it will pull out all of the uh, all of the function, all the actual um, stepping back a little bit. So, I don't want, so all code in um, in Go belongs to a specific belongs to packages. Um, so the um, this codes is sort of the that the author 
has the first sort of package that gets executed is the main package. Um, so it's kind of a similar sort of scenario, similar to how Java is. Um, and they, so what the tool does is goes and extract all of these packages and all the functions and methods and, and, and stuff. Um, and then it uses this information um, that is used for one place where it's used is for the stack trace um, to pull and get the folder structure of the um, project. So it will get the path, the file name, and then it actually will utilize some um, some functions that's part of the debug package of the uh, standard library to map, to try to figure out what's the source code length of this function. And then you will figure, sort of get the starting line and the ending line of um, the, basically the function. And then uh, once it's done that, uh, sort of by default, it will go and print out the main package and, and its sort of siblings and children um, to sort of get a, to provide sort of an overview of what the tool thinks that the author, how they've laid out the actual application. So it will be start with the first sort of package and it will tell you the path on the, on the drive where it was um, compiled. And then it will basically start listing off all the files uh, in alphabetical order. And then sort of in under that, it will just start listing the first function that is uh, with the lowest starting line number and just sort of walk down the file. So you kind of get a little bit of like a projected view of like a folder structure where you're kind of projecting into the file and see the actual function headers. Uh, it's kind of an interesting feature. Uh, and it was sort of the, it was the first thing that was sort of uh, written. Um, and it's probably one of the one things that I'm using the most because it allows um, sort of analyzing a lot of function, sort of triaging a lot of uh, binaries. Um, and you see this tree structure and you can tell, have I seen this before? Uh, does it look interesting? Or is this something um, like a false positive? Is this something that's picked up that's not malicious and things like that? Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in what I've you know, triaged, um, sort of seen samples and based on whatever code name that the author called it and some a few names on the uh on the functions you know it could take up to like five to ten seconds to figure out that huh yeah this is a ransomware that's targeting um you know qnap nas devices that seems kind of interesting maybe we should look into it you know so um so yeah so that's it i think that's one of the most interesting sort of features. And um, there is, as I said, there's other tools around that you can, that, that's been built to sort of aid um, the reverse engineering of Go binaries. But I think this is a sort of a functionality that I, I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, the the other ones sort of, it's obviously used is, um, so if you actually run, um, the binary, so it actually comes as a, 
multiple packages. So you have a core library. And then there is a, uh, a, a separate project that's called Redress. Uh, kind of just playing a little bit on the word since it's it's built to handle so sort of uh, redressing a uh, stripped binary, um, to sort of dress it up again and sort of reproduce some symbols. And this is the one that will produce that uh, nice output of the projection. Um, but this redress binary is also aware if it's run as a standalone or if you run it in the um, um, the radar toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, and if you run it inside there, it's like in, within, as if you execute it via the uh, um, pipe uh, functionality, it will um, open up the binary um, and then extract all of the functions, the methods, and the types that it can find in the binary and then annotate that for it in your. Uh, sort of a reverse in your session um, and it's very so that kind of solves that problem of you know sort of figuring out which function is what because at that point you can just directly just jump to the init function and the main function and off to races you are um, and and it's not that sort of functionality is not very it's not directly unique for the tool. I know there are some, there are some, um, some IDA plugins and things like that. It's written in Python. They will do similar stuff. Um, but what I wanted with the tool was actually something that was not strictly tied to a other, another tool. Uh, I wanted it to be um, sort of a more flexible. You can run it standalone. Um, it does integrate it with, it sort of in, obviously integrates well with some tools that I'm using. Um, but I also wanted to open it up for others to be able to sort of utilize the the functionality of the core. So obviously the um, the core library is, it's a Go package. So you can uh, uh, just import it and, you know, have it uh, analyze all the binaries and that you want and then get the information out from if you need that. Um, but it also has a uh, another sort of package that converts it compiles it to a uh, standard also to a um, as a shared C object, uh, so it's delivered in both as a DLL or a, a shared object file or a uh, Dynlib, Dynlib, so for Mac, uh, and then there's a fourth part that is actually a Python wrapper around that, that essentially will pull in those C share, those C shared objects and provide a Python interface. So if you want to write some, um, a tool around in Python to analyze Go binaries, you can use sort of this tool chain and do that too. So, um, those who want to get into, um, uh, maybe contributing to tools or writing tools. Um, what would be your what would be your your suggestions to start with? Um, I know there are a lot of people who wanted to actually start uh, writing code, or um, some of them probably like I'm I'm one of them to start like write codes and but I'm kind of hesitant or maybe shy to uh, you know publish the code online because my code is usually a bit crappy. 
um what would be your your suggestions or your 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 opinion on that so there's yeah so there's multiple ways um i that first thing of like taking something that you've produced and uh basically put it out there in the opening is it's not easy um there's you know you kind of expose yourself a little bit so yeah, yeah. it it is a, it's a big it's it's a yeah it's a it's not a like a i i can see how a lot of people sort of struggle with it but uh um and i struggled with that in, in the beginning too um but once you sort of done it a couple of times uh um i mean you get to a point where you don't really think much about it um but nowadays i i write stuff and i put it out and you kind of there's yeah i sometimes i get surprises that uh i get comments on older projects that i haven't touched in five or six years people <laughs> suddenly you get a comment on it and you go oh yeah this one was not this was just some toy project i was playing around it's not nearly functional uh you probably shouldn't look at it um so yeah you get kind of get surprised sometimes um one way it could be to also if you find some a tool or something like that that you use or like um to maybe sort of contribute to that um so um there there are definitely some some stuff out there um they're they're sort of easy to start with um and i i've i've done that too so i i think i've written a few I've provided a few little enhancements to the Viper framework, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a nice code base. You know, it's, everything is in modules, and it's almost like it. You know, you if you're just used to write some simple script in Python to process something, yeah, you can you almost can take your you can take your script code and kind of just translate it into the the structure that you need for the module and uh, kind of sort of just then that it's a little bit of a tying sort of this stuff together but then once you've done that you kind of have a nice module mm -hmm. and uh yeah and you find a lot of uh, uh and, and and that's kind of a, a an interesting way you can do it too because you you're kind of you have usually also example code so you can see kind of how people have been written modules and things like that. So if you're not sure with the way sort of the, you're writing something, you can kind of look at that and kind of emulate what they've been doing and sort of um, yeah. sort of get, at least you get into it, so get comfortable of um, making the stuff that you're making available to other people. Um, yeah. And then sort of build up your confidence around it. That's uh, awesome. So that that's that's a good advice. That's a good voice of uh, wisdom as well. Uh, I'm sure it's uh, definitely coming from your experience, uh, and a lot of people, including me, can uh, relate to that a lot. Um, starting with um, if if pushing own code online, uh, I think starting with contributing to an existing code base would be a great idea. I think that uh, um, help us to understand how maybe other people also works or how how they what's their style of coding can get inspired with awesome so with that we are at the end of this podcast 
thanks Joachim for your valuable times and thanks definitely uh, thanks a lot for sharing uh, an interesting reverse engineering toolkit for Go binaries. Uh, those who have not checked out, um, do check out go-re.tk. Um, that's an amazing project there. Uh, if anybody's interesting, definitely go ahead and um, contribute uh, to the code or use it, uh, and then you can definitely share feedback. So, you know, Joachim or anyone who's contributing to the code can definitely improvise it uh, in case any any enhancement or any new features that uh, the, the, part, the audience are um, seeing. Joachim, any last, uh, last word of advice? Um, just have fun. Um, find, if you find something that uh, you are... Uh, like a problem and you you'd like to solve it just you know just go ahead and solve it and you know don't be afraid of putting stuff out there you know the internet can seem to be a um sort of like a vicious place um but i think it's good as a the mindset you can have as a someone that is writing tooling and provide you know free tools for other people is you don't really have any obligations to, um, you know, to to the sort of the users. This is, you know, it's your baby. It's just something that you are working, and you're putting your free, usually your free time on it. Um, so, don't feel intimidated or threatened around it. And same, I think, on the on the other side, where if you're a user of someone's tool. Um, you know, this is probably something that someone has spent their spare time um, building and, you know, they've put a lot of effort into it. Um, if it's not perfect, um, you know, help them out. You know, this is something that they're doing to contribute to the community. And um, it's something that you... Um, so sort of should cherish and help, you know, we have to work together to all get all this stuff. Um, so, you know, it, it's all about making it easier for everyone to do our, you know, work and things like that. So be nice to each other uh, and just enjoy the, you know, the free stuff that some of us are providing. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Joachim, for your time. Thanks for uh, sharing uh, your experience. Thanks for giving me the time uh, to, sh to, to discuss about uh, Go to Worsening Toolkit and all your work for the communities. Uh, thanks to the listeners for um, listening to the podcast. Um, we'll talk to you in the next episode.